Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. I am so happy to welcome Alex Ross back to Word Balloon today. I always like to tell the story. It was over 25 years ago when uh, really, like, I think 90 or 91, when before I got back into radio uh, up in Chicago, I worked uh, for a few years in banking and happened to work for the bank that had the accounts for Now Comics. And uh, I remember, you know, they had a lot of great licenses back then. They had the Green Hornet, which uh, they did a tremendous job with. Ron Fort, uh, Fortier, I always say, is is really one of the best Green Hornet writers ever. Uh, they had Speed Racer and Racer X, and they had really interesting comic books with those guys. They also had the Terminator license. And there was a story called Terminator the Burning Earth. And I didn't know what it was. I knew, obviously, from Terminator it was tied to the franchise. But I just kept seeing check after check after check for the uh, collection of the story. And I'm like, what made this special? And I found out what made it special. It was Alex Ross. Now, uh, you know, Alex obviously just skyrocketed from that with uh, Marvels and Kingdom Come. And we've talked before about those specific books. Today, Alex is on to talk about uh, the state of uh, the superhero genre as it gets exploited by television and film and comics and just where is it, it today? Because uh, he's about to make an appearance uh, doing the one of the keynote addresses at a uh, convention in Chicago that's free. It's weird. There are so many great uh, events happening in Chicago this coming weekend. Of course, C2E2 is going to be happening. But this is a free event that uh, is at uh, the Chicago Cultural Center on Friday the 21st, Saturday the 22nd. And Alex will be involved uh, doing the, one of the keynote addresses, the keynote address on Saturday, uh, as he talks with uh, Robert Milazzo. And they are going to be talking about, as I said, uh, where things are, the state of the art with Alex Ross and our, uh, Alex Milazzo. Uh, they will explore current modalities and future visions for film, television, comic books, and performance. And, uh, you know, I kind of felt like my talk with Alex might be a nice warm-up. For, for what he wants to do on Saturday. Although I'm sure Robert and I are going to ask different questions. But uh, this we, we hit a lot of issues of what's going on today. How are film and television treating the superheroes? Are they doing a good job uh, for the most part? What are the bad things they're doing? Uh, you know, uh, we, we get into a lot, and, and I'm really glad. And I know Alex is, uh, has strong opinions. So it was great for him to, to give me this candid conversation. And I'm happy to share it with you today on Word Balloon. Word Balloon is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your incredible support at this uh, kind of rough time for me. I'm, uh, I'm between full-time jobs and radio. I do have uh, a new part-time job where I'm doing uh, traffic reporting uh, a couple shifts a week. Not a lot, but uh, certainly a foot in the door at the CBS uh, news station in Chicago. In fact, if you're in town for C2E2, you might hear me. Uh, Saturday night, late night, if you're riding in a cab and they've got the radio on, or if you want to listen yourself from 11 p.m. until 6 in the morning. Uh, they're giving me a couple shifts a week, which is uh, very nice. But uh, i got to be honest, it's, uh, it barely takes care of the house bills, let alone the word balloon bills. So thank you very much, Leek, for your support. I truly do appreciate it. I am still looking for full-time employment. I would love for word balloon to be a full-time concern, and I'm doing what I can to gather new sponsors, but if you can help as well, if you like what you hear on Word Balloon, if you think it's worth, as I say, the price of a comic book a month, uh, I try to give you a lot of great conversation. I know April is going to be super heavy with a lot of great talks. We've already had several great talks. More to come. There's so much already that I've got to get out this week because they're time-sensitive conversations, and I'm happy to share them with you, Alex being one of them today. So uh, if you like what you hear and you can afford it, uh, go to patreon.com slash wordballoon or just go to wordballoon.com. The Patreon ad is there on the front page. Thank you very much for the support. I keep getting new uh, subscribers each week, and it, it really helps a lot. So thank you again, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Old and new are on sale at InStock Trades. Things like the complete phonogram. Man, I can't wait to see uh, Karen Gillum and Jamie McKelvey. Uh, I believe they're both going to be at C2E2. But uh, this full anthology is 504 pages of the wonderful phonogram. It's 42% off, just $28.99. You can also get reach back and uh, get Marv Wolfman's Vigilante, uh, featuring the art of Keith Pollard, George Perez, Chuck Patton, Ross Andrew, and Don Newton, uh, a spinoff of the Titans, 
But uh, man, Adrian Chase's sad story begins in volume one of Vigilante. Uh, at 42% off, it's just $17.39. You can get The Amazing Spider-Man hardcover clone conspiracy. This is the full story, 512 pages uh, featuring the work of Dan Slott and uh, uh, Chris Gage and uh, Jimmy Chung and uh, Justin Ponzer and a, a whole lot of Gabriel Otto does the wonderful covers. And uh, this is uh, 42% off, $34.80. You can get Batman Legacy, uh, Volume 1. This is uh, going back uh, when uh, Chuck Dixon and Jim Ballant were handling things for Batman. And, uh, you know, Chuck had a great run. Chuck was awesome at Batman. He really was. Uh, And uh, this collects Detective Comics 697 to 700, uh, Catwoman 33 to 35, Robin 31, uh, Shadow of the Bat 53 and Batman 533, including chapters that have never been reprinted b- before. This is 264 pages, 42% off, $14.49 at InStockTrades.com. Don't take my word for it. Uh, when I say that you'll find great savings, you'll discover it all on your own when you look for uh, great books and you'll find them at great prices. InStockTrades.com. All right, without further ado, really excited to uh, bring you this conversation with Alex Ross on Word Balloon. Man, I'm always happy to have Alex Ross back on Word Balloon because uh, I know I'm in for an interesting conversation. We're uh, generationally in the in the same ballpark, and uh, we like a lot of the same things. And uh, also, this weekend coming up is going to be an interesting, I guess, life hack, because if you don't want to spend the money at C2E2... There's another great, or if you are spending the money at C2E2 and want to get, step away from the con to another cool presentation while C2E2 is going on, Lake FX Con is happening. That is a big event at uh, the Chicago Cultural Center, also downtown, uh, on the north side of the loop, 78 East Washington Street. And I'll give you more information at the end of the talk, but I don't want to waste this time uh, with me talking. I want to hear Alex talk. Alex will be uh, doing a presentation on, on Saturday afternoon. Welcome back, Alex, to Word Balloon. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, man. So, uh, you know, this is crazy. You're there, and Jim Steranko is at the Windy City Pulp Show in uh, suburban, <laughs> suburban Chicago at the same right. time as C2E2. Yeah. We ran into each other a few weeks ago at, at one of the comic stores, and it's like, why is all this stuff happening on the very same days? I mean, it's one thing. New York seems to usually be able to get it a little more right, where it's maybe days leading up to the convention, the big convention, and they'll have things. But uh, I guess, unfortunately, it, it, or in good ways, this is all happening at the same time. Well, I'm not sure until you get there and find out how many people arrived. But uh, <laughs> this uh, uh, this thing based around the modern school of film, um, it, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to relate to comics. It just happens to be that when they thought it was an idea to pick me as a, a guest speaker, that just happens to coincide with exactly the Saturday of the con, the most popular day of when everybody goes. So hopefully we get a few people that maybe are curious about me but aren't necessarily comic fans so that might come to this event. And it is a free event. I believe the tickets are free, right? Yes, that's right. So it's it's basically just a is a 500-seat hall that I'll be speaking in, and um, they'll be first come, first serves. But uh, uh, basically... It, it should be a unique exploration in talking about comics, art, and the relationship to film, which will focus more in a way than I've done in any kind of previous conversation or uh, certainly any interviews I've been involved with. Uh, so it's a uniquely different experience than ones I'm usually having. And Robert Malazzo, the founder of the Modern School of Film and also Murmur Radio, he's going to be... Uh... I assume, conducting the interview with you on stage. You're one of the keynote speakers, uh, Kevin Lyles, the uh, founder of, I'm looking here, uh, KWL Management. Uh, He's doing a conversation about what's going on in the music industry on Friday, also free. That's on Friday, April 21st at 5. Your presentation is Saturday, April 22nd at at 3 p.m. And... uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't want you to, you know, give it away here on Word Balloon, but I also want to entice people to come. So uh, I am interested in, in some of your views on uh, the state of, of film uh, and its exploitation in, in uh, or I should say the state of comics and its exploitation in film and, and television. 
Um, well, I'll tell you as much as we could squeeze in. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, this isn't something that I approached with an idea of I've got this story to tell. It's more uh, from the interest that Robert had of what he'd like to focus on by using me. So we can skip aside from the generalities of how did I break into this business, which is a you know, over-documented kind of thing for almost any talent. Um, it's more to do with, like, where does what comics, maybe even what I do, relate to this larger media extrapolation? And the thing is, that is a relationship that's really important to take a moment to sort of study because uh, it is – the one has a lot – has everything to do with the other because my – working in this comics field, trying to achieve a certain kind of look visually that was meant to be a lifelike realism. And that doesn't mean I'm alone in that. There's a whole history of guys doing that, as well as any creator in comics is trying to make you feel the experience of what you're reading. So it doesn't matter if other people were not realists like me. Mine is just sort of a, an easier sort of mirror to hold up against this idea. Mm-hmm. But when you've got this stuff on the page looking like it wants to be born into three-dimensional life and then you've got now the adaptations which have happened for as long as there has actually been comic books but now they're taking this overdrive of we're getting more of these things than we ever got before uh, with greater attention to detail Uh, in some cases creators have gotten involved so maybe even the adaptation of their work is more accurate it's all very interesting stuff, and you can sit there and pick the bones of what w- worked and what didn't, but what's a larger conversation is just saying, like, how did we get here, and should we be upset about this? And somebody, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'm going to take the tact of no, because as much as things can get monotonous and repetitive, especially to a, a modern uh, audience that says, geez, enough with the superheroes, well, people are going to see them because they're fun. And if they've overtaken the realm of film in many ways, yes, it's not the same auteur period of the 1970s that you had this sort of inventive kind of reimagining of how to create film. But um, there is experimentation in this, and comics and superheroes are in many ways getting their due where they had been previously mistreated in a lot of their adaptations for both television and film by really uh, insensitive views of how well they should be handled or just a sort of cold kind of like, eh, do we really have to take this that seriously? And in some cases, we needed a more serious view on this stuff. And in other cases, we needed a more comical view or or a more lighthearted, I should say. You know, and um, comics really it took a long time to get to this point where it was sort of fairly graded upon whether or not there was an audience willing and ready and receptive for it. And now that we're at that point, I don't say it's a technological point because the effects are able to catch up with comics. Mm -hmm. I say it's because the people in charge making the decisions have been affected by a lot of precedent now. And of course, it's good money. And the people who used to say, oh, those terrible, stupid comic books. <laughs> a lot of those have people who were running the show, they've gotten older and moved on. Yeah. You know, um, in television, and this hits locally as well, we're both Chicagoans, uh, WGN, the Superstation, had this partnership with the CW. And I know, and it was reported in, in the trade magazines, um, WGN had a, had a very influential voting interest on the direction of the CW in a lot of ways. And uh, after a couple seasons of Arrow and and also after the first season of The Flash, uh, the CEO of GN kind of at the CW meeting, and I, and I might slightly be wrong, but, but it, from a general standpoint, was like, enough of the superheroes. I, I get horror. I get science fiction. Can't we move in those directions instead? And uh, the relationship between WGN and the CW started to end at that point because, um, you know, and I don't think it was coincidentally because clearly GN has gone on with its own original programming into those science fiction and straight up horror directions. Also a great show like Underground. And meanwhile, the CW continues to chug along and the audience continues to build. Uh, It's a different Chicago affiliate now, but they they are no longer in that partnership. 
and yeah, thing, things seem fine as as the CW prepares Black Lightning to join Arrow and Flash and Supergirl. And, and you think about it, like, okay, that's one example out of all these, but you go back decades and the general attitude of the people in charge, the people who are programming or the people who are producing films, allocating the money for it, were generally very cynical and mean-spirited to this material. Yes. Whether or not it had a viability economically. I mean, I would make this case, which I'll probably do live in the event, that um, when you got that Chris Reeves Superman movie in 78, mm -hmm. the, the starting gun was fired you should have had a live-action, reinventive Batman movie, a la the work, not of Frank Miller, but of Neil Adams back then. Sure. Okay? It was, it was time. The comic fans knew how serious you could take this character then. Hollywood still had this sort of self-informed attitude of like, oh, well, that's just the, the goofy thing. That's that stupid show from the 60s. And they were not willing to really put it into the kind of overdrive that they should have. So what did they do? They took a decade to start pulling together the pieces to make the eventual film they did. And when that finally came to fruition, bang, wow, it's all this money. You know, it's a huge <laughs> success. Yeah. Yes. Well, but they act like, well, we needed to take time. No, you didn't. It was your <laughs> attitudes that were slowing things down. I'm telling you right now that we should have gotten back-to-back -back kind of movies the way we're getting from Marvel. And, of course, now DC, not as successful with their films in the 21st century, unfortunately. Um, they've been slower to pick up on the lead that Marvel took. Um, but, you know, they're in the same pattern as making uh, a series of sequential kind of uh, films that are episodic towards lar building a larger framework. Yes. Um, but they're way ahead of Marvel in terms of television, as we know. And they make a much more uh, charming product in that way that's not ashamed to embrace the fact that it's, um, you know, that those are superhero characters they're selling us. Um, so I applaud them for certainly what they do well on TV. And, of course, Marvel does better on film. But either way, everybody's kind of engaged in this now uh, as all other licensors, license holders are trying to figure out their own ways of crafting interconnected universes of either, you know, giant monsters or mid-sized monsters like with Universal. Um, <laughs> so that's the place we find ourselves now. But we weren't allowed to get here before because of prevailing attitudes. Agreed. And, you know, I, I've made this point before with others, and, I, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this. It reminds me of how the Western genre evolved in film. Because if you go back, certainly to the silent era, they had no choice and, and film was brand new. And, uh, you know, things were very symbolic. Uh, depth of character didn't start off right away. Started to happen in the 20s. By the 50s, we really got interesting psychological Westerns that went beyond white hat, black hat against each other. And I think, you know, because there are some people, as you say, too, that... Uh, are kind of bucking still against this superhero genre movement. But I also think uh, alongside that, we're really starting to just now see uh, superhero stories in television and film stretch the way that they have in comics, especially in the last 40 or so years, where, all right, let's get more adult, let's add more characterization and psychological angles to these stories beyond good guy and bad guy. And, of course, you know, part of the growing pains of this is that when the, um, when the companies are rolling out a lot of these pictures, they take too much the same approach of like, okay, we've never established this character for, before, now this film is going to be an origin story. Mm -hmm. And each one of those started to resemble one another too closely and become really monotonous. So in many ways, which, of course, you don't have to go back very far to find out, people were much more excited, apparently, by X-Men 2 than they were by X-Men 1, which was as close as they kind of gave them an origin story then, mm -hmm. and or at least Wolverine. And you, you have this learning curve that nobody was kind of appreciating, that like, you know what, just jump into it. Stop worrying about how well we understand whether or not this guy got his powers from this reason or that reason, what's his special kind of hang-up or whatever. Just go into the material. Just give us some entertainment. Stop worrying about how well you've branded this person's journey from, you know, some bizarre Joseph Campbell kind of, you know, starting yes. gun to the end. And uh, 
And there's an obnoxious repetitiveness on the part of Hollywood mindthink that we have to bore our way through, and we've been doing so. It's happened. It's just taken a really long time, unfortunately longer than we should have actually been stuck with. Uh, due to the viability of these concepts and characters breaching beyond just the page, whereas for the, I don't know, what is it, hundreds of thousands of readers of comic books? Is that how few we are? Yeah, probably. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've been accustomed to understanding the ins and outs of how to accept this material and kind of embrace the inventiveness that occurs in print and there's something that could be learned from that, but teaching it, having it be learned from the rest of the world or those who, uh, I shouldn't say the world, I should say more, the people in positions of power to get it done, is it's hard. It's hard to bridge that gap and get them adjusted to a new way of thinking. There's only a few filmmakers that I think understood that right away, and I think that's likely why you were called on, uh, was it in Spider-Man 2, that you kind of, it was through your... Uh, images in the title sequence that they were able to kind of shuffle through. Okay, for those of you who didn't see this blockbuster movie, let's give you a few key images of Peter Parker's origin to get you up to speed. They did the same thing with film in the Edward Norton uh, Hulk movie, where again, right, you didn't have to yeah. retell the origin. Let's, all right, let's get all this done in the first couple minutes while you're reading who the but associate course, producer is. <laughs> Am I right? Was it imagine, Spider-Man 2 for you? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was Spider-Man 2, and of course that provided a little bit of a link to you know, the art form, I guess, by me, yeah. although I don't know if that's the way it came across. But, uh, you know, realistically, they don't really even need to do that now, that we can generally absorb what we've needed. In fact, I love the fact that the Marvel movies generally just jump right in and they don't bother with, hey, we've got to make sure we re-educate people, page one. <laughs> although their comic books actually do. <laughs> Every single Marvel comic book has their page one dedicated to a recap yes. so that you understand what you're about to read, but their films don't bother with it because in some ways they know, you know, hundreds of millions of you have already seen this, so let's just skip ahead, please. <laughs> and I love that, you know? I mean, that's a, that's a refreshing change. What as an as an observer of both, and I and and really your art shows you you love you love these characters. You grew up with both, especially the big two in particular. Um, what do you think is missing on the DC side, uh, on the movie side? Because as you say, I agree with you. They get it from a TV standpoint. I'm almost waiting for. I, I don't want these things to not do well. But by the same token, you, you get a kind of queasy feeling sometimes when you see a trailer, and you're like, all right, and it's like you know. Give uh, Greg Berlanti and, uh, you know, uh, Andrew Kreisberg and, and, and Mark Guggenheim the keys to the movie, uh, you know, door. And it's like... Well, there's always a... You know. There's definitely an issue with uh, not rewarding um, work, work well done and always continuing to reward failure with more work. And that's something we've seen in a lot of business moves that's really aggravating. That gets to the root of a lot of the problem that what we see on film. But uh, I think mainly there's the issue of how well the people involved both appreciate the charm inherent in the characters and that they don't necessarily need to always, not simply reinvent, but almost clothe bathe them in dark light, uh, redefine them in a way that's so aggressive in a sort of hyper-connected way that they think this is what the video game generation wants, when in fact the video game generation is fairly open-minded, they'll be happy for um, a kind of colorful superhero, too. They can, they can absorb that. you know. Um, yeah. But the dark and gritty stuff is getting to the point of being obnoxious. And if you study what Marvel's done, uh, take a look at their two films for this year, which obviously would be on track to make all the money that they could ever hope to make for them, because they generally do. It's, it's pretty much become a consistent reliability for them. And, you know, that's fantastic. But, like, Guardians of the Galaxy looks colorful and gorgeous and fun. Like, it's there to entertain us. It's not there to say, ah, yes, but we got to make sure these guys, although they're not the same kind of icons that other superheroes are, mm -hmm. um, they're here to be light, fun. They're as serious as you need them to be for the context of what they appear in. But let's actually get some charm across. And if you've seen the 
the preview for the Thor trailer, uh, the oh, trailer yeah. for Thor. Oh yeah. That does exactly the same thing, and Thor isn't compromised from being Thor, aside from getting the haircut for part of the story, you know. Um, although, we get the haircut, but we get the helmet as a trade-off, which is something all of us comic book fans have been wanting for the last ten years. So, it's sort of like, uh, you win some, you lose some. But um, That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled at what they put out there, that it seems to be self-aware of how well they can sort of embrace the material for being closer to what it really is, you know, and the yeah. range of how they can charm us. And charm is something to really get your head wrapped around. If you have characters you're working with that you're so afraid that the world is judgmental of and thinking, oh, that's old man superheroes, those are stupid, and then you want to dress them up to look like this is not your father's superhero, You've got the wrong attitude to be in charge of the project. <laughs> Agreed, man. I want to. That's you know, probably the most I should say. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I understand, but you're right, and and it's moments of delight, like in the Thor Ragnarok trailer when he sees Hulk and he gets really excited and has this very human moment of, "Hey, I know that guy," <laughs> and that was great. In the same way that in the Flash Supergirl uh, crossover. When Flash shows up with ice cream and the delight on Supergirl's face is like this is fantastic, and and yeah, you know and yeah, really, the, really I know charmed. that's yeah, and social media went nuts over both of those moments. And it's like <laughs> yeah, this I mean that's the thing, something that simple, but it's just nice human connection that that really humanizes these characters and like you said, gets beyond the grim and gritty. And I mean, not that I would go into this at the uh, talk, but since we're you know focusing on some minutia here with stuff like this, sure. um, I uh, since I watch all those shows because I'm an addict, you know, that's one of the things I thought I would actually go off on for a bit in the the talk is like how comic book readers, in a way, we're a different form of addiction, but follows generally the same principle. That's how this has all been kept going for 75 years. Absolutely, is addiction keeping adults in, engrossed in in returning to keep following these adventures and addiction to following certain characters and whatnot. But um, across these shows, which, you know, range from charming with Supergirl and Flash to kind of muddled with uh, Arrow and and even the, uh, oh, what is it called, uh, Legends of Tomorrow. Yes. Um, Arrow has the, the intent of trying to be the sort of Batman show. We're trying totally. to give you that Batman attitude. And I appreciate their intention of like we've got to give people this tone variation but it's run the longest obviously it started this whole little universe in effect but it's also in a way the most boring of the shows you know because it isn't as focused upon the charm of it even though he's surrounded by some other superhero and villain characters that are nice to see brought to life Mm -hmm. um if you actually then compare that material to what was the basis for this, not Batman, but in fact, what was Green Arrow, you then realize, oh my gosh, they've never even gotten around to doing the character as he was in the comics. Yeah. Because it's not about the character that started in the 40s and the 50s, who was a pretty standard kind of Batman ripoff. It's the character as he was reinvented by Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill in 1970 and became the sort of voice of a kind of hippie generation as a superhero. He was the conscience of the Justice League for many, many years. Yes. And it seems like they don't find that interesting enough to examine. And I always wondered, like, if this show lasts long enough, can we actually get to the point where he gets to be that guy? You're right. And I haven't seen, and I, we haven't seen him nudge in that direction. And he's, he's pretty much been the Batman of the CW uh, superhero universe. And I, I agree with that. And it's, you know, I'm glad you bring that up because as you said earlier too, there is this feeling of this, these aren't your father's uh, superheroes. You know, a lot of, I think, uh, careful consideration as these characters have evolved. Uh, and I, and I want to throw in even some older characters like Tarzan and stuff in the mix. There's a lot of characters that I think in, in their initial concept they reflected their times, and their times were less sensitive to issues of sex, issues of, of race, uh, sexuality, and that. And I do think that as time has gone on, later creators have brought these characters back and given them the social conscience that was necessary. And, and you see a more respectful uh, portrayal of a character like Tarzan. Or, uh, you know, I mean, they found a way to reinvent. I mean, really, the one thing 
uh, that uh, that Will Eisner, you know, you can kind of you, you might wince at as far as looking at the beauty of the spirit is Ebony White, uh, his, yeah. his his black yeah. friend and, and his evolution in the hands of the, you know, uh, other writers and artists that have that have taken on the character. I mean, you know, God, uh, Matt uh, and I'm blanking right now. Grendel, Matt Wagner has done a wonderful job, I think, doing a modern day spirit and showing, you know, proper respect. For, for characters and stuff. I you know, I, I think a lot of times, and I think we saw this recently with Iron Fist, there's an initial reaction of, oh, well, you know, it's a it's an it's a character that's based in Asian culture, shouldn't it be Asian? And they forget some of the good things that I think came out of Iron Fist, especially like you know, as they teamed him up with with uh, Luke Cage. And you had this like great kind of brotherhood comic book that not only that but i mean danny rand was uh you know his he he was in love with misty knight so there really were like all the races kind of working together for a common good absolutely yeah iron fist from the comic standpoint represented that mixture and of course that's what we expect or hope to see come to life within the netflix usage of him and of course we're going to get that group usage where he's with luke cage by the end of this year Mm -hmm. but you know the hope is that of course, this will all lead to the dual combining of them because that's where the richest use of both characters really, that's where they gelled the most. Yep. And, of course, that's what worked in comics for the better part of 40 years for both of them is that they were better as a duo than as solo acts. But since they're starting this off now, we get this long, protracted story that didn't necessarily pull off that successfully for each one of them. And they need each other, but the audience doesn't necessarily, the, the broader audience doesn't necessarily know that. And, of course, they're looking at the martial arts aspect and thinking, why would this guy be white? And they don't understand, well, this is where it's heading. It's about a very interracial kind of combining. It's about, you know, African-American and Caucasian teamed up and a multicultural kind of grouping for a lot of their associates. And they represent a real sea change in American consciousness as our comics grew and changed. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Again, we were we were young enough to watch it as it was happening and stuff. And yeah, I hope uh, I hope the Defenders series uh, corrects perceptions and 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 or at least informs perceptions better to the good the good things about uh, Iron Fist. Because yeah, I really I, I really did feel I, I I think the Netflix show has its problems. But I, I do really feel like the character got a raw deal. And also, you know, uh, coming from uh, the original inspirations of things like Lost Horizon and stuff, that really weren't um, usurping culture. It was really just, if anything, admiring it in the same way that, like, a, a jazz fan can appreciate blues or jazz and say, this is incredible. What, you know, I would like to learn more about it. And, in, you know, in the case of like Lost Horizon and certainly in the Iron Fist origin, that Danny Rand is embraced by this, you know, Asian culture and, and mysticism and is just a student, is not the master, is really, I mean, you know, it's, he's, he's the student still learning. And in fact, it is his liabilities that make him a more interesting character. And no, he's, he doesn't have all the answers, he's not able to summon the the uh, chi immediately you know like a master would and stuff and it's it's those kinds of drawbacks that, that i think make him interesting but appreciate the culture and not try to take over the culture i think that they would have if they could have planned it out for you know sort of one more show in their grand uh plan for everything if you had introduced shang chi before Agreed. and had an actor who really fit that bruce lee model that yeah. would really sell that uh, you know, unfortunately, in the case of Iron Fist, it's not just that people react to him being Caucasian, not understanding that that's what the character's always been, but they didn't get a martial artist, and that's that's strongly reflected in the show. If they had maybe done the comic book thing and not been so restrained from giving him his classic mask, we could have put a mask on this guy, got whatever stuntman you wanted who knew all the martial arts in the world <laughs> that could do these stunts well, but... They try to teach a guy within like I don't know what was it two weeks apparently yeah, to get in shape for this. Yeah, yeah, that that's that should be something that they're making a, a note about. Okay, don't ever do that again, <laughs> you know. But who knows? It, it, the problem is the people who make these choices aren't necessarily the ones that feel the pain. You know, the actor yeah. gets blamed, and you know the the character gets blamed. Agreed. You know, but. Not necessarily the person who made this poor scheduling choice or or production choice, but you know that's 
I feel like I could I could sort of evenly, uh, openly pick on a show like that because I don't pick on most of the Marvel stuff that brazenly, as well as, you know, it's like they've had so many successes that when you want to point out something has failed like that, you feel like, ah, nobody's going to, you know, it's not going to suddenly cause this gigantic rift where I'm suddenly get called from Marvel and said, like, you know, you should be more of a team player. <laughs> no, I hear you, man. Well, and, and and it's okay. Like, you know, they, you only learn from, from mistakes, so I, I hope this is a, a good lesson for them to, to kind of correct this, the course, because otherwise I, I think the Marvel shows have been great. But I'm glad you mentioned The Mask, because that's something that I think all producers... And, and creatives as they try to adapt this material are facing and and you're a guy that may... But they're facing that thinking it's a problem, yes, whereas on. no one from the outside world is telling them it's a problem. They're telling themselves that. They're speaking to their other <laughs> Hollywood friends and producers who are saying like, oh god, those masks, those costumes they're ridiculous. The fans want that. The people who want to see a superhero show they could say like, oh, a guy's got a mask, must be a superhero show. They're not as prejudiced as they presume them to be, and so they make these bad choices and don't let any other voices in. When when you design uh, your, you know, when you're painting and you're, you're designing covers and when you did do interiors and stuff, and you really did make this cloth look plausible and, and real, I mean, you know, it, your work speaks for itself, Marvel's Kingdom Come, Every time you 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 know do a cover with you know people in spandex, it it looks right, and you don't have to extrapolate and say, well, it probably wouldn't be spandex. Maybe it would be a, some sort of tough leather or something like that. Uh, you know, was there? And you've even gone on to redesign characters as well. I mean, you know, the Winter Soldier when Bucky Barnes becomes the new Captain America when Steve's lost in time. That's right. It wasn't that your design for uh, for the. Uh... That was one, and then the, the current Spider-Man. That's another redesign there I did. You go. Um, even though you might not notice him being different, um, probably you could tell better from my covers that he's supposed to be shiny. But he's essentially the classic costume design with a little bit of tweaking here and there. Okay. And uh, you know, so yeah, I've gotten a chance to do that on a few uh, kind of big time characters. And then, of course, too, uh, you took all those great public domain. Uh, heroes of of the '40s and and dusted them off and and reinvented them for the modern age as well and gave them new looks and and things like that. Are, are you know are you were you worried that I mean was that an opportunity to as you say with lighting kind of improve some of the looks or did you think all right maybe maybe instead of spandex what what works visually but also is as plausible as everyday work as or everyday clothes as well. Well, you make these eccentric choices based upon your own leanings. Like, you know, I put a lot more time probably over my career, especially with doing interiors for the DC characters. And I wanted you to believe in the classic version of these guys Mm -hmm. to some great degree. And so what their costume details were, I wouldn't necessarily be tweaking too much as much as it's maybe the tone of the color, the choice in this case, like this might have a bright color in one spot, but then these other colors contrast to uh, become darker by, by by their comparison. So like, say, Superman, I wanted more of an ultramarine blue as opposed to the more aqua blue that Chris Reeve had and the comic books had at the time. So it's a choice for focus. And, of course, all of my choices mainly are throwing back to a lot of the histories with the characters that I'm following. You know, you go back to the 40s, Batman wore black. and in the 40s, Superman had a darker color, especially on the color printings and cover printings. Um, his blue was darker. Captain America's blue was darker. How Captain America became this sky blue, I think, revolved around coloring process shifts by the later uh, era of the 60s. Okay. Because then that's when we think of him as being that very primary blue. But if he's designed based on a flag, and if you've ever seen a flag, you know how dark that freaking blue is. You know, it's a navy blue. He would be a really dark-looking character. And in my way of thinking, he could be an incredibly gritty-looking character based upon 
his original costume design with no reimagining without adding all these sort of extraneous elements. You know, it's also a case of what is that mask made out of? You know, it's not necessarily fabric like we always thought they were. It could be leather, and leather does have a different kind of quality to it that could have a lot of wrinkling here and there, and I try and bring that through in the work I do. In fact, you know, some of my work, of course, has been adapted into three dimensions, and I did a series of busts for uh, Dynamic Forces years mm-hmm. ago that were all life-size busts where the sculptor and I work closely together to try and get this realistic tone to these things. In some cases, before I was really doing much work with the characters in print, but like Captain America, we went out of our way to try and make this feel like this material that, like, wow, I believe it when I see this mask he's wearing. You see that the wings are not these things just hanging on by tiny little arms, just hanging and waving there, but they're in fact these strong things that actually anchor to the side of the head in a way that wouldn't necessarily get tussled about or wouldn't wave in the wind or anything. And, uh, you know, it's hard to make an impact because there's only the work I can do and then hopefully what my work might catch on with with any other artists if they like what I did or if the filmmakers look at what I did and like what I did. But, you know, here we've got what is it now, five, no, wait, it's six films of Spider-Man, and the one coming out this year is the first time we have something that bears a strongest, the strongest resemblance, probably, arguably, to the comic book original costume. Mm-hmm. Agreed. You know, uh, you've had these variations. They're all good. They're all very interesting in what they've tried to do with textures and, you know, raising the webbing and lowering the webbing and all kinds of stuff, partly looked like a basketball in one of the movies. So um, <laughs> this one, he's got something where you look and go, that's the comic book on screen. And it's refreshing to finally see. Um, is it exactly the way I might have done it? Maybe, maybe not. You know, But sure. either way, um, I've got to be open-minded and not be so strict in always looking at these things as if I've got only one way I can ever appreciate these characters. You know, I've seen countless actors play parts like uh, like Superman, and none of them have ever really resembled the Joe Schuster, Max Fleischer style that I always loved. And that may never happen. You know, it's Agreed. that's more likely to be brought to life in a video game versus where you could just sculpt a human being rather than them casting somebody <laughs> who actually fits that type. But that's okay. You know, it's not that these other versions are somehow delinquent. You know, Chris Reeve is still the Superman for a generation for good Total. reason. Oh yeah, you know. Well, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I agree. I think, and I was uh, as pre- preparing for this talk, I was thinking too about how difficult it was uh, to get people, like you say, that really fit the suit and present that kind of larger than life, imposing figure of Superman. Uh, and it's it's to the actors' credit who are, in some cases, smaller men. The the Supergirl Superman, I think, from a character standpoint. He really gets it. I mean, the the writers have given him a, a Superman character, but he's so much smaller than your average Superman. I mean, he he looks like he would be about a five foot ten, you know, guy. Who, <laughs> you know, who would be kind of easy to kind of slip into everyday society as Clark Kent. So I guess it's more plausible from that sense. But it is tough. I mean, the guy. Well, I didn't I, overthink that when I watched it. I mean, I don't know if you did, but I I didn't. That didn't necessarily distract me from him thinking like, oh, he must be shorter because. You know, um, because of the shape of his arms or shoulders, whatever. I mean, performance mattered with that. You know, he came across, and also aesthetically, there. I'm, I'm, you know, since I'm creating art of these things and choosing what I want my to base my uh, my style upon, I'm choosing features of faces, maybe even using, as I've done in the past, friends of mine as specific. Uh, guidance and inspiration, and certain features resemble and bring out classical things with a face more than others. So he really had certain things that would feel like, yeah, that feels very Superman-like. You know, it was a good choice for that guy. Um, you know, the only sad thing is I still feel like Tom Welling's out there still waiting for the part that should have been his at some point and never was given to him. Yeah, yeah, he was great. No, you're right about that. Your Superman face. And we might have discussed this before. I always forget the name of the uh, model that James Bama used for Dark, Doc Savage. But it, uh, there was something about 
the the center of of the Doc Savage face that reminds me of your Superman. Am I were you were you influenced by that, or is there is there a friend that was a model? Uh, who was your Superman model? Uh, an artist named Frank Casey, who's a local Chicagoan I used to work with in advertising, and uh, he was always a very big guy, had that kind of Charles Atlas type body. And uh, my first thought with him, because Frank's blonde, is like, oh, he'd make a great uh, original Human Torch or huh. Captain America. Sure. So I couldn't get away, and this is just how limited your brain works in many cases. I'm looking at this person thinking, oh, he'd be good as all the blonde characters, instead of the eventual eureka moment, which I'm not sure how long it took for me to go, change his hair color, just draw it differently. That's what you can do with drawing. You can change simple details. But, you know, once I did that, I realized, oh, the features of his face resemble uh, a Joe Schuster drawing with tiny little tweaks or maybe just focus upon the lighting, casting these shadows around the eyes and the nose, and then suddenly I'm getting this... Uh, uh, representation of a lot of the photographs I took of him that would remind me of that kind of cartoon art style as developed back in the 30s, you know, and I felt so rewarded once I was doing that. And of course, nothing I was doing was original because Steve Rude had just recently done it with a miniseries uh, called World's Finest that yes. he had done around, I think, was that 89 or 90? Close to that, yeah, around that time. Go on. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, it's. It, it, I'm sure there's plenty of other precedents beyond he and I, but, uh, yeah, so basically that became my focus, and then thinking, how can I bring this to the fore? And once I was eventually pitching Marvel on, I'm sorry, pitching DC on a project, then I had the uh, placement of how to really bring that forward. But, um, yeah, when you mentioned the work of James Bama, that was always a huge influence on me, because even though I didn't then own any of the paperbacks themselves. I had like lots of images that were printed in Comic Scene Magazine, if you remember that one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and a huge impression of the way that uh, James Bama used shadow, lighting, color, a lot of monochromatic treatment. I wanted to bring that to Superman. Not that it would necessarily be like that face of that model whose name is is like on the tip of my tongue. And Steve I'll to something. I, I know his first name was oh, Steve. Oh, Steve Holland. That's yeah. right, Steve Holland. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, and of course he's the hmm, second actor, I think, to play Flash Gordon for a TV series in the early 50s. Right, yes, that's so right. So he, uh, he didn't get much work out of that. It wasn't successful, unfortunately, but uh, then he winds up becoming not just the model for Doc Savage, but countless other characters, like uh, the novel character Destroyer, uh, the Avenger, all these other paperback novels created from different artists, the uh, covers created... Um, back in the 70s and maybe going into the 80s, he was the life model for people that he, they would pay him to come in and do a pose for something. I mean, in fact, he even posed for the Hulk for Bob Larkin. Wow. That's... I've got a painting on my wall I got from Bob Larkin years ago, and he told me about how he would regularly get Steve Holland to come and pose. And, you know, so Steve Holland has a whole lot in common uh, aesthetically with the friend of mine who poses as Superman or has posed as Superman, Captain America, um, God, countless characters for me, Magog, you know, I, and at one point I was only using Frank for just about every major character and, uh, <laughs> you know, and it became something that was so repetitive in my work as I was, I was thinking people would think that that's what I looked like because if I used them that much, I must be in love with my own face or something, you know? <laughs> But he has he has a bit of a different stature than me. He's got uh, and he's got a full head of hair, which you know, God bless him. That's that's. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's I hear you. Well, that. yes, I no, I can appreciate I can appreciate that absolutely. <laughs> as we get older, no question. You know, another thing too that I, I always loved about your work in particular was when you were doing all those Justice Society covers, and you got to uh, modernize. All those great Golden Age characters. And I mean, you know, from Alan Scott, the Green Lantern, to Jay Garrick, the original Flash. And it's it was really wonderful to see, you know, your modern interpretations of, of these great characters. And I love the original cartoony, cartoony looks that, you know, guys like Erwin Hasten and those guys uh, who originally worked on the characters brought. But it was really fun to uh, get this realistic modern look uh, from these wonderful characters from the 40s. 
And sometimes I could look back at my work, like as I continue to read material about golden age characters, particularly from magazines like Alter Ego and such, mm-hmm. I'll look at old artwork and think, oh, I could have done that better, you know, like or the way that I drew Jay Garrick, you know, his his cartoon impression in the 40s was these giant thick eyebrows. Yes. Well, that's not existed in my version. Now, you can lose your thick eyebrows as you age, but <laughs> I didn't get that right, unfortunately. You know, I, I sort of got in my mind one kind of face that was a variation, and I had another live model for that. And then I wanted to remain consistent with that. But I've come around to thinking, you know, it's been a long enough career at this point. I've been doing comics for 28 years. Wow. Um, so, yeah, uh, that basically, um, and that, of course, that's not 28 years since Marvels. I've actually been in the business longer than when that came out. Oh, but, sure. Um, I, I, I've, I've realized that some things you can trade up, you know, like I've done more kind of odd commission illustrations of uh, Superman where I've used Chris Reeve instead of Frank Casey. Okay. Because it seems appropriate for it to be Chris, and it's kind of stretching out and sort of feeling like, you know what, it doesn't have to be just this one way of looking at it, whereas I did multitudes of illustrations where I was just always trying to push Frank Casey. In fact, um, when I went from doing the older version of Superman and Kingdom Come to then doing what was supposed to be modern-day, younger Superman, arguably, yes. uh, in, the, in the late 90s for me, when I was doing him in various covers, prints, and then the one book I created with Paul Dini, um, I was still keeping it that same face, just minus the great temples, because I wanted it to come across as, this is an older guy. This is a 40-year-old guy. Yes. You know? Like, we wouldn't have had any shame about that decades before, but now we're stuck in this mindset that, like, well, you've got to go younger. Why? Yeah. You know, Superman got battered by this impression that partially is the fault of Chris Reed being so handsome and young, is that, well, he's got to be the most handsome guy you've ever seen and youthful. And unfortunately, that became stuck in the mindset of many people, and of course, many artists interpret it that way. And I always felt like I was trying to buck that trend to say, no, don't you remember? This was the patriarch of all superheroes. Exactly. Yes. No, agreed. And there didn't used to be a shame about being a middle-aged man as a lead character, but we've we moved into that. We're still in that to a great degree. Um, but it's not necessarily proven by what audiences accept. If you cast a middle-aged guy, as they did with Robert Downey uh, with Iron Man mm-hmm. 10 years ago, mm-hmm. look at how well it paid off for them. Yeah. And here he is 10 years later, and you don't think anything about it. But it was appropriate for the character that he be the age he was, and it's only served it. You know, The, I... the character has been benefited by the age of the actor. Could not agree more, man. I completely agree. In fact, when we were growing up and were hitting the Bronze Age of Superman, he was still kind of cast in that fatherly figure, which was appropriate because this was for, you know, a tween audience, a 10 to 13-year-old, I think, core audience, where we would look at Superman as kind of a father figure. And I also think it was, it's been, it was fun in uh, Thy Kingdom Come, your interior work that you did for JSA, where the Kingdom Come Superman would would talk directly to the Earth One Superman, and and you saw the subtle differences between the two of them. I felt like um, when you when you were working with that version of of the Kingdom Come Superman, that you were leaning more into the squinty Joe Schuster classic Superman look than your original Superman designs, just in the eyes, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. No, I, I keep wanting to push for that because I don't want it to be forgotten. It's almost like this is the distinctive design features that were used in the first 10 years of the character's existence when it had a predominant art style based upon the co-creator and it weakened over time due to the the reasons of having to change up the art team but you know when you think about things like um, Dick Tracy which has been around seemingly for (laughs) 2,000 years if you decided to throw out the crook in his nose (laughs) And he's got squinty eyes. He's got thick, dark eyebrows. If yep. you decide to throw those things out, what do you have? Well, you have Warren Beatty, frankly. <laughs> and it doesn't remind you anything of the character. These are important details that can be captured in adaptations, 
but you have to care about them to push for them. And every time we see that happen with the casting on some of these shows or movies, it's a delight when you see somebody who's the right person to play a part. And especially for us that are more attuned to the, the fine details, when it feels so right, it's sort of like, oh, my goodness, this is so fantastic. It's nice to know they have a common vision with where this needs to kind of go. That's the way I felt about Benedict Cumberbatch getting the pick for Doctor Strange. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree with that. And it was it was fun prior to Robert Downey seeing your uh, almost Hollywood wish list in some of your, uh, you know, the times you got to draw Iron Man and Timothy Dalton would be Tony Stark. And it's like, that would make a hell of a lot of sense. And I know I remember seeing that in a few comic magazines over the years. And I'm like, oh, if only that would be great. Um, you know, were there other do any other kind of uh, pre Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, casting uh, decisions come to mind, or even DC ideas of actors that you're like, oh, if, you know, if if I were the king of Hollywood, this would happen. Those kinds of uh, nods that you've done in your work in the past that I'm forgetting about. Oh, uh, well, I mean, being the king of Hollywood in that way is usually picking people that are already long since older or dead. That's all right. Cases to play the parts. So, Fred McMurray certainly. You know, that's uh, a lot of what I know. did. Yeah. For, you know, I mean, I used uh, Russell Johnson from Gilligan's Island, who played the professor, to be Reed Richards. You know, that was that's a key great. thing for me that I really wanted that that thing, you know, because I thought that since I was a little kid, that he reminded me of the character. Well, I'm going to draw that. That's you know? really interesting. Um, or, you know, and in the only case I can think of right away that um, that correlates to what actually would happen is using Patrick Stewart, who was popular from the early 90s as being in Star Trek, to use him as Xavier, and then having, you know, whatever it was, like five or, you know, more, more like seven years later, him actually playing the part in a film. <laughs> And not just playing the part of the film, then being stuck playing it for like the next 17 years of his life. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is really stunning to think that like, wow, that's what happened. But, you know, it was a good pick and it added a lot of character distinctiveness. Because when you look at the drawings that a lot of the key designers did in this stuff, they're not all individualized in a way that um, calls out for paint close heed to that you know you can largely say that a lot of faces are fairly amalgamous in the way they're drawn so you can decide that jeremy renner's as good of a hawkeye as anybody else even though i think he's a very good choice for that mm -hmm. just wish he had a mask um sure <laughs> but you know when you've got uh you know characters like tony stark you could say ah any guy's face although technically he was inspired by earl flynn and that's yes. what was reflected in the artwork of the early 60s you know it was very very clear at that time. Um, so, you know, somebody like Professor X, he had as blank of a face as you could come by. Um, so when you take, I mean, the only distinctive thing about him was the bald hair and the eyebrows. Sure. But if you then take that and apply it to a face that has so much more character to it, like Stuart, it's like you can enrich the work. And I see that being done today, and it's been done for... A very long time now. It's nothing new to see people using uh, current faces as inspiration for what they try and draw. There's plenty of other realists who came into the field in the last 20 years who mm -hmm. do that, and I enjoy seeing their choices. You know, some of them I'm very impressed with, and others I might not feel the same way. But you know, it's it's really cool to see it tried. That's excellent, man. No, and I and I agree with you. I think it's. Uh, it is always fun to kind of see that it's you know a nice little Easter egg of oh look at that and, and maybe you'd never thought of that actor in that way and it, it's it's nice to make the connection. Um, this is the kind of conversation that I'm expecting and the great thing is I'm sure Robert Malazzo is going to go into a lot of different directions this coming Saturday, uh, three o'clock, April twenty second. Again, it's at. Uh, the uh, Cultural Center, the Chicago Cultural Center, 78 East Washington Street. Uh, this is part of Lake FX, uh, the creative con that uh, is the Midwest's largest free conference for emerging artists and creative professionals. There are more than 50 workshops over the weekend, but uh, we focus on uh, Alex's uh, presentation uh, coming up Saturday at 3 o'clock. And again, I can't stress it enough, this is free. So uh, this is a, a nice thing to take advantage of coming up in Chicago this weekend. Beyond beyond that appearance, Alex? Um, oh, April 22nd, not this weekend. 
Yeah, well, yeah, as we're recording, it would be, yes. I, oh, gonna, oh, right. I'm and, sorry. No, no, I'm it's all good, son. <laughs> That's right. We're, we're in the sorry time machine that. right now. So, yeah, we're going to, when this comes out, it'll be Monday and it, it will be uh, this, okay. uh, this coming weekend. So, yeah, no worries, man. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to give people a chance to actually listen to it and think, oh, this sounds good. I want to I want to I want to go and not have them have to make a 24 hour decision. <laughs> and I would at least say not that it's going to help much, but, you know, will there be a little bit of visuals to back up your uh, your experience of sitting in a room hearing me talk for however long? And hopefully we can keep it as light and lively as possible. But, uh, you know, there'll be some either slides or clips that are going to actually be on display to sort of support some of the things we're focusing on and talking about. So um, trying to keep it as a, a focal thing, mainly upon artwork to film. Understood. No, that's going to be great. Now, your, your, your works have been um, circulating uh, museum-wise as well recently. Are there any upcoming uh, tours of your works uh, coming up? I don't have the details yet on the next place that will be carrying it beyond the one that I was just at, but... Um, the one that I went to, uh, and I don't normally always visit them whenever they go to various places, um, but uh, the, this first show was in Virginia, in Winchester, and um, in a place called the Museum of the Shenandoah Valley, and a gorgeous wow. museum, and we got uh, upwards close to 2,000 people wow. showing up for this. So we had to kind of shut down the inlet of people coming in because there was too many for getting to see everybody. And, uh, you know, when you've got something based around it being a signing, that's not just a crowd that can sit around and, you know, absorb me talking. You have to see each one of those people. Absolutely. You know, and that's a whole lot of time. So it was a seven-hour signing, and I just about died back then. Oh, Alex, I do. I feel for you, man. And that's really cool. (laughs) You accommodated those people and – you know, gave them the chance to really get to meet you and thank you for, you know, the enjoyment that your work brings to them. I, you know, it's, and, and really, man, I am so pleased that your, your work is as recognized as it is by these museums. Uh, I know a couple of years ago being at, um, the, uh, Oh God, Saturday evening post. Um, what's it? Oh, the, uh, the, the, uh, Rockwell. Museum. Yeah. With the Rockwell. Thank you. The Norman Rockwell museum. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's the thing, man. I, I'm so glad that, the art circles, you know, are, are appreciative of the work you do. And again, that you've, you know, it's the culture has caught up with you because I think you were kind of for a long time, the exception of look at this fine artist that is working amongst these comic book people. And luckily now I think the culture has slowly, you know, kind of understood the appeal of the source material and I think have a greater appreciation of, of the art that comes from it. And it's one of those things that we can see reflected in our local libraries because now they have expanded sections of graphic novels that they wouldn't have had 20, 30 years ago. Um, You know, that was always something you were always coming up dry on when you went to your (laughs) local library as a kid. Yeah. And now the people who are making those choices of what to stack stuff into the libraries – they're choosing this stuff because it's popular and there's readership for it. And why wouldn't you want to encourage kids to read this stuff if they will check it out? Absolutely. I'm sure you were part of my generation as well where, like, there was a great coffee table book collection of, like, uh, Peanuts, Charles Schultz uh, stuff. And and it was constantly out in my class and stuff. And it's like, oh, man. And like you said, there were, like, there was that maybe Jules Pfeiffer's uh, comic book history that, that he did. You know, just so few uh, things. And now, yeah, like you said, there's entire sections of it and stuff. And I love talking to librarians and hearing that uh, graphic novels are a very important part of what they stock these days in libraries. Now, it's a it's a different world. And luckily, we're still part of it. And uh, you get to contribute <laughs> and get to be appreciated by, by a much wider audience. So really, congratulations and uh, good luck Thank on the, uh, the presentation coming up uh, Saturday, April 22nd, 3 p.m., uh, the Chicago Cultural Center, that's part of uh, Lake FX, the uh, the third annual Lake FX Creative Con. And uh, go check out Alex Ross and his uh, keynote uh, address or presentation on, on Saturday. Thank you for your time as always, dude, and I, I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you for having me. I'll tell you, I've only had, I think, three or four Alex Ross conversations, but every time I really do look forward to it because, I, as I say, um, we speak the same geek language in terms of the reruns and the old movies that we all saw. And uh, really, it's it's been a pleasure to 
you know, start to get to know Alex Ross, even as briefly as I have. We we had a meal together uh, when he and Mark Wade did that Kingdom Come signing in Skokie, Illinois, at Art and Franco's uh, store, Ah Yeah Comics, and uh, it's 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 truly been a pleasure. And uh, you know, my uh, my buddy Sal Abinati, who I am good friends with, has been the guy that is you know. Uh, let me uh, come in contact with Alex the times that I have and have these great conversations. Happy to share it with you today on Word Balloon. It was all brought to you by, again, the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you for your support, League. If you'd like to join the League, uh, go to wordballoon.com, click on the Patreon ad. It will take you to my Patreon page. Thank you truly for your support, League of Word Balloon listeners. It's also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Reach back to the 90s for the excellent series Legionnaires, with uh, Tom McCraw, Tom Pyre, Mark Wade, Stuart Immerman, uh Lee Motor, Jeff Moy among the uh, art team and creative team. Uh, great stuff, man. Great, great stories of the Legion of Superheroes, a great version of the Legion. 50% off. It's just $17.49. You can get the Daredevil by Brubaker and Lark Omnibus. Uh, Michael Lark at Brubaker. What a great run. Uh, this uh, collection, Volume 1, uh, features uh, 608 pages. And it's 42% off. It's just $58. Uh, Stefano Gardino, by the way, another artist that uh, is featured in that wonderful collection. Uh, when it wasn't Michael Lark, it was Stefano. So uh, at least I want uh, Stefano, I believe, is how Rucka always told me how to, how to properly say it. Uh, you can get the Haunt of uh, Fear collection, uh, the Great EC Archives, coming to you via Dark Horse. Uh, this collection is uh, the hardcover volume four, and it features the work of Al Feldstein, uh, Graham Engels, George Evans, Jack Kamen, Jack Davis, Reed Crandall. Man, this is uh, The Haunt of Fear, number 19 through 24. It's 216 pages, 42% off. It's just $28.99. I, you know, I, I don't know. Lately, I feel like I should tell you how many, how much the pages are. Because some of these seem like big ticket items. But then when you find out how many pages it is, it's like, oh, all right. I can, I'd pay that. That's, that's not bad. Batman, Nightfall Omnibus. I mentioned another collection of... Uh, uh, work from uh, people like uh, Chuck Dixon. This is Nightfall, and it uh, collects uh, Batman, Detective Comics, Shadow of the Bat, Robin, Catwoman, Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, and more. Uh, this is, wow, 952 pages, but it's 50% off, so it's only $49.99. But, uh, man, is this like the whole nightfall omnibus is this the full story i'm not sure i'm really not sure but it's got a lot of pages man but that story went on a long time too you might want to investigate that but there are other great books as well at instocktrades.com listen listen to me like not selling you this book uh man i'll tell you no but there's always great books at instock trades you know that um i certainly talk about them enough here on the show i'll give you one more book ta-nehisi coates john hickman uh brian stelfries among the wonderful creators chris sprouse doing Black Panther. This is uh, Volume 3, uh, Nation Under Our Feet. And it is 42% off. It's just $9.85. Say, great books at great prices at InStockTrades.com. Thanks again for listening to today's Word Balloon. Uh, more episodes on the way this week before C2E2. I will be at C2E2 Friday and Sunday. I won't be there Saturday because I've got this overnight traffic shift from 11 at night until 6 in the morning. If uh, if you're in town and you want to hear me on the air, uh, I'm on every 10 minutes doing traffic reports. And it's really interesting covering live news via the fire department scanners and police scanners. And uh, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. And I, I give these traffic reports every 10 minutes for six hours. So if you're coming back from C2E2 Saturday night and you want to be safe on the roads, you can tune in. It's AM 780 and it's FM 105.9. And uh, it's uh, WBBM, and uh, you'll hear me doing traffic every every hour or every ten minutes on the eights. So eight, eight, eighteen, twenty-eight. You can figure it out. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you <laughs> if you want to listen in, and uh, feel free to email me and tell me what you think of me doing traffic reports. I'm brand new to it. It's a new radio skill, and uh, I'm I'm getting one or two shifts a week uh, doing this, and it's it's great. Uh, it helps, but uh, I thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners, once again for your support as well during during my time as I search for a new radio gig and try to make uh, the Word Balloon Empire kind of push it forward. So uh, thank you again. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2017.